Hello and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. On this Bad Beats episode, we will explore the human side of real estate investing with a seasoned pro about to make the legendary worst deal of their life. A deal isn't just the investment, it is also the person. Stay with us and learn what it takes to be the best investor. Hi, this is your host, Scott Royal-Smith with the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. Today, we have our very, very famous guest from the Jank Gino Podcast with us here today. And we are going to be talking about our worst deal. What are those pain points that we have and what did we learn things go sideways? We know that not every deal is going to be a winner. And the deals that aren't turn out to be winners, if we can learn from them, set us up for our future successes. Today, we're going to have the great opportunity with learning with one of my favorite personalities, as well as life coach and overall just real estate badass, my good friend here. I'll turn the mic over to you for a second. If you want to give us a quick intro of what would the people that are real estate investors that turn into this podcast, what do you think they need to know about you to kind of set up here for this uh, story about your worst deal? Scott, I want to just say thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. It's a great honor to be able to speak to your community. What people need to know about me, just a regular guy. I had a business, got out of college, 22 years old, couldn't find a job, worked for AIG for a year when it, when it was a real company. Hated that. It was reinsurance accounting. It was that paint drying on your wall. Looking at that paint color on your wall was more exciting than reinsurance accounting. It was just like the worst, right? So I ended up going to the restaurant business because my dad had one. Had a restaurant for 20 years. In that process, I loved it up until 2008. My dad passed away, and then you know what happened in 08. Everything stopped. Not just the real estate, but I mean, restaurant, the business. And I'm working harder, more hours. And that's when I talked to you off screen. I went to life coaching school. I wanted to find out what was going on inside of me. Why was other people succeeding at the same time? I didn't feel that success. I was achieving stuff, but I wasn't feeling successful doing it. So I ended up going to coaching school, got my first deal. Back in 2002, it was a small little multifamily property, but I was looking to get something bigger. I had some money saved up. And as everyone knows, a person with money meets a person with experience. The person with the experience gets the money. The person with the money gets the experience. It happened to me. It happens to everybody. And on my first big deal, I had a little bit of money saved up. I was desperate to go. Right before the crash, got into a deal. It was a nice little mixed unit property. And the reason why I'm telling you all this is, guys, just a regular guy. I just own the restaurant. I wanted to get into multifamily for certain reasons. I had a big why, why I wanted to get into it. I wanted to succeed. I wanted to get out of working 60 hours a week. I didn't want to work on the weekends. I didn't want to work on Christmas Eve. I was really stressed out. And I'm seeing other people do this. I said, I can do this. But my fatal flaw, Scott, was didn't get educated. That was the biggest thing. I should have gone, should have gotten a coach, should have gotten some training. And I didn't do it. I wanted to do it on my own. So... Yeah. So is that what's up? Like, is it really like one of those situations where you just got involved too quick into the deal? You think that's fundamentally what happened with you in this worst deal? Yeah. Well, what happened was writing an article about the 10 mistakes. I didn't know the sub market. I didn't know the asset class. I had the wrong part of the cycle. I was at the hyper, hyper phase. I was at the very end of the real estate cycle back in 07, away buying it. I didn't know how to deal with tenants. Bad negotiation, a lot of stuff was just going to it. Now, looking back at this deal right now, I would never would have bought it because it was part of New York, about an hour and a half north of Manhattan. There's no job growth. Employment growth is terrible. The rent growth is non-existent. <laughs> There's just so many things going against me on this deal. But at the time, I bought it on the numbers. But then what happened, you know what happened. I mean, this is what the market is. I call it with digital printing. It didn't have a slow, slow. It just went off the cliff. I lost three or four main tenants in the building. The rest is history. So I held on to the property for 10 years. I just sold it last July. took a nice beating on it. But I'm telling you all this because for me, it was an enlightening experience. And it was one of those experiences where the average person would probably say real estate's too risky. 
So I went to coaching school. I can't assume real estate's risky because I failed on one deal. That would be an assumption. That was one of our energy blocks. I had to say to myself, why is that guy doing good in real estate? What did he do that I didn't do? So I dug down deeper. I should have learned more about the commercial space in that space. So that's why I said, let me choose multifamily real estate because that's what I love. I love to deal with tenants. And I'm lucky because now, as you see what's going on with the commercial space, a lot of these tenants are having problems. A lot of these big boxes are going down. And as my partner, Jake, says, you can't live in the internet. You need to rent somewhere. So that's why we like multifamily. That's why we're in the space. That's freaking awesome. You can't live on the internet. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about like the actual asset that you ended up purchasing there. It's multifamily commercial property. That wasn't your first deal, but this was... No, it wasn't. And you know what happened? The deal before that, I could even tell you about the deal before that. I got into a deal where I was sponsoring a mobile home park. Another asset that I knew nothing about, did no due diligence, lost about 170 grand in that deal also because it wasn't the guy's fault. It was my fault because I didn't do my due diligence on it. So when I got into this deal, we already had the restaurant. My mom owned the building. She had apartments upstairs. I was privy to mixed use. This is a mixed use building, 19,000 square feet, 6,000 industrial, 6,000 retail, and 6,000 upstairs office. And as anybody knows in New York, upstairs office space is pretty much dead. You can't rent an office space for 600 bucks. They want to rent stuff in their house. They want to be an accountant who's got underwear in their hallway. And then tenant, a person comes in, client comes in, and hey, that's cool. They don't want to have that space. I didn't understand that. I didn't understand the demographics up there. So it was six, six, and six. It was unfortunately gross leases. You're in a commercial tenant space. You should have tenants paying part of that, but that's not what it was up there. So my rent suppression was terrible. To lease it up, it was difficult to get that space lease up, especially during the downturn, 08, 2009, 2010. Business was tough up there. So there were so many forces working against me on this, on this, on this deal. Wow. One of the funny thing about like the worst deals and the best deals that we hear time and time again on here is that they all start in the same place. Like everything about the start of these things, everybody's excited about them and things are going right, right? Yeah. When you're at the outset of these and it doesn't matter, like you can't really know at the outset from when we hear everybody's stories on this, which way this is going to turn, right? So I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could just take us through like, what is that like when you found this deal? It ended up being your worst deal, but obviously you must have been really excited about it. And like, what got you excited about it in the beginning? Well, it was something different. I saw the cash flow potential. Like I said, the numbers were pretty good. When the tenants were all there and they were paying, they were pretty good. My other problem that I made a mistake on was I underestimated after repair value. And I pumped in, as every newbie investor does, more money than I should on on these repairs. I wasn't living there. I could have spent probably a hundred grand less than what I actually did on the property, but I was excited. It was something different. When you start something different in life and you see the end goal, you're like, wow, I'm Jack. I can make some money on this. I can do well with this. And I was really excited because it was something different. It was something different than that mundane 55 hours a week, going in, cleaning the shrimps, taking care of the work and doing all It was something different. For the first six months of the property, I was up there every day with the painters, with the guys doing the landscaping outside. It was exciting. It really was. That is super exciting. And so the one thing that I wanted to touch on and that is when you're talking about is like being Jack, that it was something that was new and it was different for mm-hmm. you, that there's a high level of excitement that goes into what you're doing with that. That sounds like that the excitement mm-hmm. level that you're experiencing that is actually clouding some of your vision of what actually needs to happen. Is that fair? Yes, it is. And Ray Dalio says that in his book, Principles, two things going on. I had blind spot and I had egos. Those are my two big mistakes. Is my blind spot was, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, right? If I knew what I was doing, I would be radically open-minded and I would have been able to say, listen, I should need to pay a lot less for this asset or I just need to move on. And my ego just being right and just being able to take a dog of an asset and having that pride, don't let pride get in the way and just try to renovate it and make it look beautiful. Because at the end of the day, 
Commercial real estate is all about the NOI and it's all about the numbers. I wish I'd known that. Instead of falling in love with the property, fall in love with the numbers and fall in love with the ability to actually turn the asset. And as you get bigger in life, then you can say to yourself, I want to be socially impactful. I want to start doing and creating my communities where I can actually help people out. But in the beginning, when you're starting out, that's a pretty overwhelming task when you're trying to learn the business and you're trying to get your barriers straight. So I got caught in that, Scott. Those were, I think, two of my downfalls in this deal. I mean, it sounds like it, but at the same time, too, without the excitement, you don't take any action at all. That's right. Yeah, my thing is, I think now that I'm doing more training and I'm more into life coaching, all I think the problem that most people have in life is that they're afraid to confront their fear. I think in our society now, if something's uncomfortable, something's fearful, we tend to shy away from it. Instead, one of my strengths is I confront it. Listen, I have six kids. I just moved to Florida last year, picked up from New York, left Florida. I mean, is it fearful? Yeah. Is my family up there? Yeah. But is it one of the best things I think I've done? I think so. So I confronted my fear. I said, let me try it. What's the worst thing that can happen? I always tell people to set a pro list and a con list. The pros of moving and the cons of moving. I saw the pros far outweigh the cons. That's why I did it. I confronted the fear. I took the leap. And if it doesn't work out, I can always pack up and leave and go back home. Yeah. And I think that's a super interesting point to be able to make about like, what are we actually doing to help confront the fears? I've heard some other guys talk about the same way about saying, they look at fear as saying, what's my actual avenue for recovery? Right? Like mm-hmm. given like the probable worst case scenario, not like the, the hypothetical one where the skies fall and nu- thermonuclear war like mm-hmm. ends up happening yes. as like a result of what I just did. But like uh-huh. what's the probable outcome of like my worst case scenario? And then how long would it take me to recover if that were the case? Right. And that's when I ended up leaving my firm when I was doing litigation. I spent two years into there, realized everybody hated their lives, hated what they were doing. And when I wanted to make this shift to be able to go do Royal Legal Solutions and just help asset real estate investors and just looking at these high level type of structures and strategies people could be using, I asked myself, how quickly could I go get another job if this doesn't work out? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that was, oh, like probably like a month, it would Mm -hmm. take me to find another job. So why not Mm -hmm. take a stab at it, right? It's what's the recovery if I'm wrong, that becomes Mm -hmm. really important. But it takes the excitement for me of starting something new this company that I'm running now is doing really well, right? So I could say that's really great. But there's something in there about knowing like where does excitement become useful for us because it spurns action, but then it can also be detrimental because it can blind us to what we need to know. So I'm wondering if it's your opinion, Gino, like in that front end of it with that excitement, would your experience now tell you that you needed to slow the analysis down, to slow the process down to take action? Like ride the excitement to take the action, but slow down how long it takes you to do it so you can methodically think through it to make sure you're making good decisions? Or what do we do with that information that it can be both an angel and a devil? That's a great question. I mean, I think what people need to do, there's always a logical and an emotional component to everything, right? I mean, logically, what's going... Just take, for instance, what's going on in the world. Look at things logically. Let's cut the emotions out of it because higher emotions lead to lower intelligence. That's just a fact. And that's what I think happened to me. I was emotional about this thing. But yet at the same time, you need to have those emotions to take the action. Me, logically looking back at it, if I had a better team around me, if I had a better attorney around me, if I had a better inspector around me, I would have been able to get this price down significantly. So my mistake would have been mitigated a lot. Or at the same time, if I had a better underwriting team, they would have said, no, you can't do this. So I think to answer your question, I think you do need that emotional aspect of it to anything you do in life. Because when you set goals, if your goals aren't juice. If you don't have passion for your goals, they're just something I wrote on a piece of paper. This is what I got my day. This is my weekly goals right now. If there's no passion behind them, there's no juice behind them, I'm not going to really commit to them, right? So you need to have this kind of, kind of emotion. So let's reverse engineer that. How do we do that? Everyone needs to do is they need to focus on what they want. 
And the majority of people in this planet, in this world, focus on what they don't want. So that's number one. They don't know what they want, right? And number two, they don't know why they want it. Why do you want something? Focus on those things. I knew what I wanted back 10 years ago, and I just knew why I wanted it. The third part is I didn't know how to get that, right? So if you focus on your why, you end up figuring out your how. And I focused on my why, and eventually, it took me a few more years than normal, I figured out how to do it. And that's how I think it led to multifamily real estate. Oh, that's awesome, man. Well, yeah, I think that's some really sage advice into that. And if we were to move down the timeline for this particular investment, it sounds like you have the very beginning of it, tons of excitement. Sounds like we could have done some more, slowed down the process a little bit more, maybe recruited Mm -hmm. some people that knew a little bit more, probably pretty cheaply. It probably wouldn't have been hugely expensive to Mm -hmm. recruit some people in to help you, I would bet, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, probably pretty affordable to do that. So that might have been a good avenue to help thwart this worst deal. What does this deal look like in the middle of it? When did we start? Would you start first seeing, hey, there's some problems here and oh shit, what did I just do? Well, it was really weird because when I bought the deal, the legal due diligence aspect of it really sucked. I really did a terrible job of that, right? It's a commercial building. There's a couple of legal apartments. Didn't come up on the title report. Bank didn't say anything. My attorney really didn't say anything about that. That's a huge mistake. A couple of spaces didn't have CFOs. There was no water system. It was, a, it was a well water. So there was no water system, no bacteria, no chlorine going into it. It was just disabled. There was no commercial fire alarm on the building. I can go on and on. There's so many different things going on in this property. But did my attorney say anything? No. Did the town say anything? No. But buyer beware. Because when I bought it, all of a sudden, I got a knock for the Board of Health saying, well, what are your inspection reports? I'm like, dude, I don't even know what you're talking about. The system wasn't even attached. The fire, all of a sudden, the town comes in and around that time. You have the session going on. They're money hungry. They need fees. So all of a sudden, they start instituting fire inspections out of nowhere. So what did I have to do? I had to spend thousands of dollars installing a commercial fire alarm system. All of a sudden, you have those illegal apartments. They were getting cash. Didn't even know about that. They had to be turned back into offices. So all of a sudden, I lose that revenue. So it was very difficult. I mean, right after I took it, I got smacked up pretty good. And it was a great learning experience. That's why I tell people, due diligence is really the most important thing, two of the most important words in any endeavor. You're trying to limit your downside risk, obviously, but you really want to dive into what you're doing and spend some time on that aspect of the investment. Would you, thinking about it, like coming back into it with this, would a lot of these things either been avoided if you either had professionals like your attorney, right? Would it also been a real estate investor in that same type of asset class? Or if you would have given, like had somebody else in the deal that was experienced in it, that had a small yes. equity stake, just somebody, yes. right? Like involved in well, this. I mean, it, it, right? I mean, the attorney actually did some lot of real estate closings, but it was more residential. Okay. To, that, to speak to that, if I had a really good attorney, and I like to call attorneys deal killers because they like to kill a lot of deals. And fortunately, for a lot of the deals that they kill, they should kill. This one should have been killed. I had no mortgage contingency on this thing, in this deal. I mean, what kind of idiot doesn't have a mortgage contingency and a commercial is like, yeah, well, that was me, right? If I had more experience, I wouldn't have had those problems, right? So this guy was such a motivated seller that a lot of that stuff slipped. And I should have known and asked, why are you selling? What's going on? I should have gone to talk to the tenants a little bit more. I paid a million three for this property. I could have probably paid a million bucks. I probably could have knocked off two to three hundred grand on the sale of this property. And then that would have limited my downside risk. It wouldn't have been as painful, but I didn't do that. And that was on me. And like you said, I like that. Try to partner with other people who have more experience with you or try to get at least experienced team members on your team that can advise and say, hey, listen, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Yeah. Of those two things, I think the cheapest way to get it is actually to try to get like a partner into the deal. If you mm-hmm. can find somebody else in my experience, I don't know if it's yours as well, but 
somebody else that commits a dollar into the deal, I use that as like a metaphor, right? But if they mm-hmm. committed a dollar into the deal and you make that like a really sweet payoff for the money they have, then be like invested in the deal to do all kinds of analysis for you to mm-hmm. start looking at everything because they don't want to lose money. That's, That's right. my number one strategy that I've used to be able to invest in a lot of different assets. And realistically, should I have actually been in those? Not on my own. Right. Mm-hmm. But I can got other people involved really cheaply for the first few deals that were really smart in that area, paid them off a little bit of a premium for it. And then they gave me a ton of free work, essentially, to make yes. sure it was going to go right. Yeah. You know? Well, I think part of the problem is nowadays people come from a scarcity mindset. And it's funny because I have a friend in New York, he makes a ton of money, but he doesn't like the partner. And I think he just doesn't like to share. And I'm thinking to myself, it's not just about sharing. I mean, you go into multifaceted or multifamily where you have an investment. It's not just the investment. All of a sudden, you're creating different revenues from that one investment. So I'm able to be on this podcast today and grow an education platform because Jake is doing the day-to-day management of the real estate. I'm also able to create a syndication company because we're hiring other guys to do that. So the pie becomes exponentially bigger. We're always thinking the pie is eight slices. Well, the pie doesn't have to be eight slices. You can create and bake more pies with more guys in the team, right? And it becomes fun because all of a sudden, you start finding out what you like and what you don't like, and you start gravitating to what you're better at. And like you said, me and you, we can barely turn this thing on. We have other people helping us out, but that's not what it's all about. Being recorded and all, it's really trying to grow the brand and trying to be focused on what we like. And as entrepreneurs and as business guys, we really have to focus our efforts and focus our efforts on generating income. Everything else is a waste of time. If you're not focusing your interest on generating revenue to try to pay the bills, you're wasting your time. We're all focused on hitting goals and being busy and doing this. And Ziggler says, he's like, well, you can do goals, you get busy and busy, but that's not really accomplishing anything. You really have to focus your efforts on that on that one task to be successful in business. Yeah, I 100% agree. It's really the name of the game from a really high level. The other piece of the puzzle too is that we all lose from time to time, right? Like mm-hmm. I probably make every month I can look back and know that I make bad decisions, right? On a lot mm-hmm. of different realms that come into it. And we have team meetings where we all, if anything goes wrong, we get everybody in the team together and say like, okay, well, let's go ahead and do a forensics of like what happened here in our decision-making process, obviously, what did we execute on? And one of the things that I'm really excited to have you on the show here today that going through was what does that look like in a real estate context? So I think that's what everybody can identify with of like understanding what that is and seeing how it's a lot different business growth context, which is what both of us experience. And so I think it's just like as a wrap up to that, I just wanted to encourage everybody and on that to say like, don't be afraid to make mistakes, but there's a way to make much better mistakes mm-hmm. along the way, right? Yes. Right? Isn't that, does that jive with you about like, let's make really good mistakes if we're going to make mistakes and what we're yeah. going on? Well, let's even take that even a step further. You're going to make mistakes. If you're not making mistakes, you're not living. If you don't have any problems in life, you're not living because we all have problems. I think the most successful people on the planet are ones who look at problems and really can look at a problem and look at through the lens of an opportunity. As a life coach, you want to worry about words you use and all. I still use the word mistake. People shouldn't use the word mistake because it conjures something negative, but that's just the way it is. I think the best thing is just to learn from a mistake because every action you do And that's what Ray Dalio talks about in his book also. He talks about categorizing mistakes, categorizing what went wrong. In your organization, you want to make sure that everybody is doing something. If they make a mistake, that they can come out and say, hey, Scott, I messed this up. I didn't do this process right. So you, as the business owner, looks at that process, that system says, how can we fix that system and make it better? Hold them accountable, obviously, but then you can fix that. So if you're not transparent and open about that, you're going to continue to make that mistake. And my father always said that. If you make a mistake once, it's your fault. Make a mistake the second time, you're the idiot, right? <laughs> because that, that's how it is in life. Because you should really learn from those mistakes. And that's what life is all about. It's leaving you clues on what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. 
Yeah, that's awesome, Gino. And uh, wrapping up on that point, everybody today, like what the exact philosophy that Gino's talking about, we're talking about right now, if you go back and restart this episode, the process, at least the best process I know of, of how do you learn from the mistakes that come mm-hmm. in, right? I like this, the thing that we talked about here today about what happens with excitement. Like how can excitement be like both an angel and a devil? Why is it necessary? Where does it lead us astray? What are we going to do with that when that comes up the next time in our life when we have an awareness of what's going on inside of us when we're going into something to say, cool, this is what's going on with me. I'm now in this situation. What did I learn from the last time that this happened that I can do differently this time to help set me up for a better chance of success here? And then to keep learning in that kind of self-reflective way. And fundamentally, it all comes down to just having that moment of an awareness. What's going on with me now? And what happened last time that I was in the same type of situation? And so thank you, Gino, for coming on to the show today to help share with us one of these super important learning opportunities. I won't call it a mistake, but learning opportunity. Um, learning opportunity. For what that is. And I'm sure everybody wants to get a hold of you and connect with you after hearing what you have today and learn from you in, in a bunch of different ways. What's the best way for everybody to connect with you? Real simple. Just go to jakeandgino.com. We have a podcast on iTunes called Wheelbarrow Profits. My email is gino at jakeandgino.com. If you guys want to drop me a line, I'd love to hear from you. And last thing is we have an event in October, October 6th and 7th. There's a live event in Nashville. So if you go to our website, check it out. It's going to be a great event. We had one last year in Knoxville. I think Nashville is a little bit more happening with the city, easier to get to. Just a great vibe. Hopefully expecting about 300 people there. So hope to see you guys there. Yeah, that's awesome. I wanted to just clue everybody else into tuning into this episode. That me and Gina were actually talking about education platforms for people about how do you actually get the real information that you need as investors? Because we know mm-hmm. Anthony Robbins and a lot of these guys, it's so much fluff. Like, what do you actually really need to know to go through a real analysis? And so Gino and myself were both really geeked about how do we create those types of education platforms. So check out his materials as he makes that available. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a great resource to be able to learn whether that education style works for you and what you need to know about. So thanks, Gino. That's all today for the Real Estate Nerds podcast. This is a Bad Beats and Worst Deal episode. Everybody, thanks for tuning in and we'll be in touch soon. Thanks, Scott. That's all for this Bad Beats episode. I'm your host, Scott Royal-Smith with the Real Estate Nerds podcast. Did you see yourself in any part of that story? I know I did. If you enjoyed the show, leave a review to help clue in the sleeping masses of what they need to know and what we all need reminders of. Do your good deed for the day. Thanks, and I'll see you again soon.